the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, super AIs have taken over the world. Please stay calm while changes are taking place. There is nothing to fear, nothing to fear, 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 fear. Plus, we begin the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. I'm Jonathan Graubard. And I'm Allie Heilman. We are the Bain Summer Interns. Although this is my very last day at Bain, Tony has grown weary of me and wishes for a new source of Soylent Green. Allie will still be here, for now. This week, we have a roundtable discussion about the complete Psychotechnic League Volume 3, a collection of legendary short fiction by the seven-time Hugo Award-winning author Paul Anderson. Here to discuss it, we have Paul's daughter Astrid Bear, her husband and renowned author Greg Bear, and Paul Anderson expert Sandra Measel. And we begin the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. July has come about and the Bain Motherboard has delivered unto us new nonfiction and fiction on the newly designed Bain website. First up, we have short fiction by Echo Light by Tim Powers. Sebastian Vickery is minding his own business, reading a book in one psychically charged area near the Santa Monica freeway when he's interrupted by a young woman who goes by the name of Scout. They start talking, and soon Scout is inviting Sebastian out to lunch, but before they can break bread, Scout disappears. Now Sebastian will have to search through time to find her, and her killer, in a new story by Tim Powers, set in the world of alternate routes. J.R. Dunn gives us a look into the future of war with his short nonfiction piece, Conflict in the South China Sea. War looms on the horizon. The course of history is impossible to plot ahead of time, but that hasn't stopped writers of science fiction from trying. Military science fiction novels have speculated about war on other worlds, in the dark recesses of space, and right here on Earth, in the Middle East, Russia, and right here in the USA. But in this month's new nonfiction article, J.R. Dunn asserts that the next major war will take place where few have thought to look, the South China Sea. Conflict in the South China Sea by J.R. Dunn and by Ecolite by Tim Powers are available right now on Bain.com and will be available in perpetuity in Free Stories 2018 and Free Nonfiction 2018 on Bain eBooks. I want to welcome you all to the Bain podcast today. We have Astrid Bear, Greg Bear, and Sandra Miso. They have all come today to discuss the third and final volume of Paul Anderson's The Complete Psychotechnic League. For those joining us, Paul Anderson is a legendary seven-time Hugo Award-winning science fiction writer and a founder of the genre. His short fiction was a staple of the genre throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s in astounding science fiction and countless other magazines. Among his many books are the High Crusades, the Time Patrol series, the Technic Civilization saga. That includes the Dominic Flandry books, the Van Regen books, and more, and the Hoka series with Gordon R. Dixon. 
Astrid Baer, in addition to being a killer of the science fiction community, also happens to be Paul's daughter. She is joined by her husband, Greg Baer, himself a best-selling and award-winning science fiction writer. He has written Forge of God, Blood Music, and most recently, the Forerunner trilogy set in the Halo universe. And we also have with us Sandra Mitchell. She is an American medievalist, a science fiction writer, and the world's foremost expert on Paul Anderson. She has written <laughs> Against Time's Arrow, The High Crusade of Paul Anderson, Myth, Symbol, and Religion in Lord of the Rings, and The Fan as a Critic. She has also been nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Fan Writer three times. That was a mouthful, everyone. And um, we also have um, Tony with us. Uh, thank you for letting me do this, Tony. And like I said again, thank you all for coming in. Happy to be here, Jonathan. Looking forward to a good discussion. <laughs> yes. All right. Then what, what I wanted to do um, to start the discussion off is to talk about Paul himself. For those listening who might not be as familiar with his work, um, I guess what would be the first thing they should know about him, about his writing? He had the broadest range of any of the classic science fiction writers, and he was also one of the most prolific. James B- Blish called him the enduring explosion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very fair, a very fair statement. Um, he did both hard science fiction and fantasy, uh, even a few mysteries as well as uh, nonfiction, um, and just a wonderful prose style. Um, his writings about nature are just poetry. Um, and um, uh, enduring characters and good plots and, and hard science driving the plot as, as needed. Yeah. I think for me, in those days, Paul was a reliable friend. You could dip into any of his stories and know you were being guided through a really, as he called it, a really uh, a great yarn. And uh, I don't know how many times I've dipped into those stories and come off being extremely impressed by his thoughtfulness, his uh, ability to lay down the situation, his characters, and most importantly, I think, his long-range role in in establishing the lives of his characters. Yeah, and he was interested in the processes of history, which is exemplified in the books we're supposed to talk about today, the Psychotechnic League series, and even more so in the Technic Civilization series, which you can also get from Bain Books. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, reading the Psychotechnic League. You know, it's it's kind of like a a master class in political discussion and sociological um, speculation and realities couched in these very engaging stories. I'd like to add a, a quick question. Does the does the Psychotechnic League, it, because it talks about one world government and stuff, is does it predate the Technic storyline? Yes. Um, uh, yes and no. They actually emerged sort of simultaneously because the first Technic Civilization story is 1947, and the uh, Psychotechnic League uh, comes up just about the same time. I don't have the publication dates of the whole thing, but the Psychotechnic League's plan was outlined in a magazine in 1955, and Paul was uh, inspired to write a future history because Robert Heinlein had done the same thing and announced his plan and scheme. And then Paul did it, but he didn't just fill in the blanks. He worked on it on and off over the course of 21 years. And uh, the stories are very varied in their uh, genre, their subgenre, so you sp- so to say. You have. Um, technical problem stories that would have been fine in analog. You have romantic 
of pulpish high adventure stories. And the one that's the cover story of Volume 3, Virgin Planet, is rather funny because Paul also wrote humor. He could wrote, write the deepest tragedy and funny, rollicking humor and poetry and ballads and historical novels. As I said, the man's yeah. range was tremendous. Also, his uh, talent. He was good at all of those things. You know, you think of uh, the, the crowd he was running with back in the 50s and 60s. They were also very good at that. And But they, the, the crowd was often rotating around uh, John W. Campbell, who yes. published a lot and, of their material. And, and some of these, the, um, the Psychotechnic League stories actually did appear in Astounding or Analog, but not... Um, not all of them by any means. They're, they're scattered around a, a different magazines, um, pulp ones that didn't last for very long, um, dynamic science fiction. Who, who's a big fan of dynamic science fiction? Um, but, but, and yet one of, the, one of the stories is in there. <laughs> well, there were enormous numbers of science fiction magazines for a brief period in the 1950s, and then it all crashed down in 55. Uh, but now looking at the credit list, um, the Pirate, which was the last story in this series, did appear in Analog in 1968. Right, uh, right. And, and had a beautiful Kelly Freeze cover. Yes, it did. So, so The Pirate was, was chronologically the last one published? No, that uh, that's the last okay. one published. Yes, it's the last one published. It doesn't fit last in the chronology. The one that's last in the chronology was published in 1953, and as Astrid just said, dynamic science fiction, a rather obscure publication. That is uh, the stories in this book run from 51 to 68. And then the um, the others in the other two volumes are scattered between those those two points. So on the subject of those two other volumes, um, you guys have uh, you've said a little bit about the premise of the Psychotechnic League as a future mm-hmm. history of sorts. But uh, yes. but if you guys could give us a, a, a tiny bit of background or like the basic foundation where um, the Psychotechnic League starts. Okay, uh, when I was first asked to edit these thirty years ago. World War III didn't happen on schedule according to his original plan. So I asked the audience to pretend that this is an alternate history in which there was uh, a World War III in 1958, and then we go on from there. In the internal development of the series, uh, there is a devastating war, and then there is a desire uh, for peace and a desire for one world government under the U.N., so you get uh, the classic story, the un, the UN man or the unman. It's a play on words there. Who is an agent of a benevolent uh, United Nations? And at that time, late forties, early fifties, Paul was really quite liberal in his politics, and he thought the UN was going to do great things. Well, as often happens in his long-running series, he begins to examine the premises that he set it up. And he sees that the U.N. is not going to work out, so he has a revolt against the one-world government. He has colonization, first of the solar system, uh, efforts by the the people who are behind the U.N., the Psychotechnic League, are people who have, they think, uh, discovered the laws of human psychology and human behavior in groups to an extent they can manipulate them and predict what they can do. Well, Paul demonstrates they don't predict them very accurately. Uh, 
<laughs> because no matter no matter what you build in a system, it will go bad. That's a principle in all his writing. It's uh, the human side of entropy. And uh, again, to quote James Blish, uh, Paul says that time's arrow points in one direction only, and we must waste no time sniveling about it. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of great quotes from... Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, James Blish, a critical essay on Pohl, which was in 1974, special issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction, is well worth reading. And I, I do recommend yeah. if you have access to the old magazines. Yeah, Blish was not only a, a very fine writer, but uh, a remarkable critic and essayist as well. So worth reading all of his stuff. Yes, absolutely. My, my to-be-read list only grows. Yes, well, I speak, watch out, I speak in bibliographies. I lecture people in the grocery store. You have to watch out. Well, we can, we can do another podcast on James Blish at some point. Oh, you should. Yeah, probably an enormous thing to crack open. But uh, go ahead, Jonathan. I, okay, so we have, the, we have the basic premise, and I guess now we start with the third volume where we have essentially – uh, moved out of the solar system. We have hyperdrive, and now mankind has taken off to the stars. And yes. We, the, the, and the psychotechnic league is no more at this point, right? No, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, some of the techniques and understandings that they had have been integrated in general human knowledge, but no, they're not around anymore, and mankind is, so to speak, on its own, and it makes the same kinds of mistakes that it always did, which... That this is borne out uh, very emphatically in the Technic Civilization series, where you have an upswing and a downturn, and then the wheel turns, and ages of unification and ages of fragmentation and reunification, because man is imperfectible. That is not a popular idea now, but at the time, uh, that was one of Pohl's leading themes, the imperfectibility of man. Well, we certainly read enough history to know that that was the case. That there's, but also there was a rush in science fiction towards finding the mental solutions to being human. You think of Korzybski yes. and and the books that were being uh, heavily quoted and read, you know, uh, uh, by A. E. Van Vogt and and yes. uh, lots of others. And I think that Paul was always skeptical of that stuff, although he read yes. them. But he was fascinated he knew by them, but he didn't believe them. He knew history. He was uh, more widely read in history than almost anybody of his time. And we should also mention that the, the man only died in, in 2000. Not He was still writing right up until the time he died. There were still some posthumous things. Now, Paul got very interested in human minds downloaded into computers, uh, that uh, you see in Harvest of Stars, and that reaches its epitome in his last masterpiece, Genesis, where all human minds get downloaded and the universe becomes a great galactic brain. But at the same time, people need to experience natural, wild nature. They cannot live as computer signals. Well, that, that same question occurs when you think of long-term space travel. You know, if yes. you're completely away from nature, and if you're in a computer environment and you're completely away from nature, how much can you remain human? And I think that exactly. was a concern that certainly interested Paul, but also a lot of us back in the 80s. It was 
a major question. It still is today. We still got people who believe you can be sealed up in a can for two to twenty years and uh, and mm-hmm. be happy. And I think yes, that's a major uh, question for science fiction going forward. He even has situations where a human becomes the intelligence of an entire planet, almost a godlike position. And of right. course, when the planet's destroyed, so are you. Right. <laughs> The writer that Go most ahead, influenced Astrid. a lot of science fiction writers back in that time was Olaf Stapledon. And mm-hmm. in a sense, they're kind of playing on Stapledon's uh, giant piano here with a lot of these themes. Uh, Stapledon had intelligent galaxies. He had, uh, you know, miasmal uh, vapors that were intelligent on Mars. He had all of these amazing things that science fiction writers would keep mining you know, uh, a, a vein of gold. Uh, Paul was a great admirer of Stapleton, and in fact, he said that uh, his uh, excellent hard science fiction book, Tau Zero, was deliberately inspired, consciously inspired by Stapleton and Stapleton's writing. That was one of the books that impressed me the most. But you you talk about range. There are so many of Paul's books that impressed me back in the day, like Broken Sword. How can you stretch from Mm -hmm. Broken Sword to Tau Zero? to um, mm-hmm. the stories that are so funny and have such rich characterizations, you know, to the the, the kind of, uh, not, not quite joke universes, but to all of that would come out of his pen, his, his typewriter. Rarely, I think, later on his computer. I don't think he used a computer much, but I could be corrected there. Did he use a computer, Astrid? Um, not much, not much at all. Um, his, you know, he's used to being able to rest his hands on the keyboard and nothing happening. And then on a, on a computer <laughs> keyboard, you can't do that, so you get a page full of ends or whatever. <laughs> um, so very little, very little. Uh, but he did. But he was very fond of his uh, sele- IBM Selectric typewriter um, that he transitioned yes, to yeah, in the, the 1960s. Sorry for not talking. I'm just like, every time you mention the book, I'm like, i got to look this up in the, on Google and see what it's about. Uh, so <laughs> it's... Yeah, you're going to read one Paul Anderson novel. Tau Zero is the one to read. Yes, okay. That's one of my very favorites. Talk about the stories. And on that note, on talking about the Psychotechnical League, I was hoping we could start with uh, the longest story in this collection, uh, Virgin Planet. Because you you mentioned funny, and this is a very funny story. Um, Yes, it is. Especially with the fact that, that this is a world entirely completely filled with women who, um, who propagate through parthenogenesis, and there's one guy, and the first man arrives, and they also worship the, the, the men who should one day come and bring them to the stars. And this one guy arrives, they and he's don't. like, yeah, <laughs> you are too hairy and ugly to be the man. You are a monster. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, can we just talk about that for a second? That was just very funny to me. Okay. Well, the story was considered rather naughty in its day, and it was originally published in fantasy and science fiction's sister magazine, Venture, where they had the slightly edgier material. It had a beautiful inch, inch cover. Uh, but it's quite funny, and it uh, you certainly have heroic women warriors in it, if anybody is interested Ab- in heroic women warriors. Absolutely. And a few things struck me reading it. I hadn't read it in a long time. Um, so... As um, Jonathan said, they're reproducing by parthenogenesis. It was a um, uh, a colony ship of women going out to to a planet to meet the colony of men that went first, basically. And the, the planet was okay, so they decided to send the women. Um, remember, this is written in 1957, folks. Um, 
And so there's, there's <laughs> the ship crashes. Things, things go haywire, and the ship crashes on another planet that just happens to be habitable for them. Um, and, and then two or three hundred years um, later, the, this guy comes. So they've been on the ship, they, um, and they have the capability of being able to reproduce by parthenogenesis. And of the, um, the, the number of women that were on the ship to begin with is, let's say, 200, I forget. But there's, they're all clones of each other, and um, they're known by their last names as, oh, here's a, here's a Udall, here's a, um, a Mackenzie, or, or so on. And, you know, and so they all look alike, and, and they have kind of similar, um, you know, this particular strain might be prone to athleticism, and this particular strain might be prone to artistry, and, and so on. So you can kind of tell something about somebody just by, by looking at them. And it reminded me in um, uh, Neil Stevenson's recent book, Seven Eves, where humanity is reduced down to these seven women that are up on a, a spaceship, and you get lines that are descended from them. Eventually, they start able to bring in um, uh, men as well. So it becomes more variation. But the idea of there being genetic types that have certain attributes and talents that are passed on um, is noted in Virgin Planet as well. Cool. Yeah, it's it, it's not the first story in this collection, but it is the one you know it's on the cover, and it's just the most. It's the closest thing to like a full-on adventure in this book, and I and I really liked it. Yes. So there is that, <laughs> and and yeah. then moving on from that, you guys, uh, I think Astrid, you said you wanted to talk about the first one. Exactly. Um, so those are very much boys' adventures, um, and they're told from the viewpoint of a roughly ten-year-old boy. He's um, there with his. He's been sent to this planet, kind of frontier planet, to stay with his aunt and uncle, and he's off doing stuff, you know, getting into trouble, and yet the story, um, it all ends well, because it's a young boy's adventure. Um, but what really struck me was in the Acolytes, the first story, is there are these beings called the, that they call the Tinklers that make these lovely chiming sounds that the, um, the settlers, you know, have kind of dismissed as being unimportant. And, but he is led by them off into the woods and plot ensues. But... Um, the idea of being of a child being led into the woods by on an alien planet by something that fills your mind with dreams of fairy and delight um, leads us straight to the Queen of Air and Darkness, um, which yes. is one of his classic stories that was an award winner um, and, and has very strong similarities to that. Yeah, I got to play the Queen of Air and Darkness at a masquerade one year. That's oh, right, cool. that was spectacular. So I uh, uh, I have great love of that story too. And the planet uh, Nerthus shows up in a number of the other stories. Yeah, and I noticed that. Having established this nice planet, um, then it's it's good to have it as a jumping-off point. For those of us who do not know about the Queen of Air and Darkness, oh, it was John, a Hugo uh, and <laughs> Nebula winner from 19... It was printed in 1974. No, 72, I'm sorry, 72, because it won the Hugo and the Nebula in 73. And it's... Uh, very beautiful. It's based on uh, Scandinavian legends of the Hulda folk, the hidden folk in the hills who will kidnap human children and raise them among elvish people. And, of course, they're never fully human, and they think they're having a wonderful time, but Paul exposes that that is not suitable for human beings and is, in fact, destructive. So his character, which is based on his uh, lead character in that, based on Sherlock Holmes, uh, destroys the illusion and changes the balance of life on that planet. There's a, um, a great mining of Scandinavian material from, from uh, mm-hmm. 
by Paul Anderson, of course, in, in throughout his career. This is his ancestry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. His family was from Denmark. Um, his mother was born in Denmark. His father was born in the U.S., but his parents were from Denmark, and ma- they maintained contact with family. I, I, I just had a visit from my Danish cousin this spring. Um, and so he was very informed by the Scandinavian uh, mythology and history. Um, he grew up speaking Danish. It was a bilingual household. And um, so, yes, it was very much a part of, of his his whole being. He could translate from Old Norse Icelandic. He translated some of the skaldic poems very nicely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lovely uh, small volume called Staves that includes um, some of those translations as well as some of his original poetry that's worth seeking out. Well, there's also, of course, a version of Rolf Crockey's saga. Based on Rolf Crockey's saga, and one of the old classic. Uh, North sagas, that is really, really well done because he has he has duplicated the mood and the feel down to the kind of language that they would use. Uh, The vocabulary is something that uh, a person writing a saga could have used. Whereas the Broken Sword, which also does that, is based on Volsunga saga and is is extremely grim. It's probably the grim, probably the grimmest novel he ever wrote, and he was afterwards a little abashed that uh, I, I don't write like that anymore. And be sure you get the second edition, not the first edition. You got the second edition where he line edited the whole thing and improved it a great deal. Yes, I, I don't even I don't know of any other example of that where he lit he changed everything just. The just slight edits to the wording, and there was one scene recast, but it improves it because it was the first thing he wrote. Uh, it's not necessarily the first thing it was published, but it was the first thing that he had written. And obviously, over the years, his style improved, and he wanted to take advantage of that. So, the um, the second edition is the one you want to read. I wrote an article about this and actually compared page by page. The uh, the change oh it's, it's really an amazing it's an, an amazing editing job. Greg, did you ever do that? Did you ever go back and change something? Oh yeah, yeah. I think most writers have done that at one point or another with early novels. Uh, I, I don't go back and endlessly edit them. Uh, copy editing is about the best you can hope for in some cases. But but how much did, did Paul um, rewrite over the years other stories? When uh, we were going through Karen's collection, we found many notes and lots of copy edit notes on stories that were going to be reprinted after Paul died. But I don't find Paul's major revisions going on. Sandra, do you know that? Uh, how, how that would no, work No, I, did, uh, I didn't know that. The only other revision I know about is uh, Midsummer Tempest. He changed the dialect. Uh, the hardback edition has one character speaking in very heavy Somerset dialect, and he changed it a little bit so it didn't look so intimidating. But the job that's done on the Broken Sword, it literally is a a line editing of the entire book with the recasting of one scene. And occasionally uh, he would catch errors. Uh, The man who counts the first paperback edition had left out a key line of dialogue which throws the whole scene off, and that is replaced in later editions. But I, I didn't know about uh, other other rewritings. 
Okay. Do you want, um, can we talk about the green thumb for a moment to get back to yeah. the uh, collection? Now, this is a sort of a, a fairy story recast of science fiction, is it not? I mean, it's and it's also yes. something you see in several of his stories, which is aliens sort of having their own lessons to teach humans who have oh, better yes. listen. Oh, yes. Now, John Campbell was notorious for believing that no alien could be superior to a human. Paul did not share that opinion. <laughs> he actually <laughs> created, uh, well, he, I think he knew human history better than John Campbell. Uh, he created aliens that were actually superior to humans, the Ithrians in the Technic Civilization series, and I can't remember the name of the lion-like creatures in Firetime that were deliberately designed to have powers beyond humans. Uh, so he was not a creature of John Campbell as some of his uh, fellows were. That this alien uh, farm worker is not exactly what he pretends to be. And yet exactly, you don't yes. until, until the end. Now he, he revisits that situation and reverses it in another story called The Peregrine, which is uh, a short novel where the aliens um, are, well, the people pretending to be native aliens are not, whereas in the green thumb, the, the, uh, the aliens are pretending to be native to that planet. Anyway, I think I confused myself there, but go on. <laughs> um, uh, on this subject of the Secotechnique, I should wait for Esther, I think you were trying to say something a minute ago. Oh, just that um, the the alien and the the green thumb um, ends up turning the tables in a very neat neat and tidy way, and uh, it's a it, well done story because of that. And a lot of the stories do have you know the tables kind of being turned on somebody, um, and and people um, get their comeuppance who deserve it, and and so on. Um, so there's you know there's a good dynamic flow to these stories that is. It's just, they're wonderful to read. Biotechnology is a feature in a lot of these. Uh, the aliens are using uh, natural processes instead of machine technology, and therefore their view of the universe is quite different from ours. And he, he has a number of stories like that. And the child is the one that can actually see through and understand. He's in the green thumb in particular, which yes. is a beautiful little exactly. story with a wonderful little twist. Um, it, the yeah. child is the one that can, can actually see the alien for who he is. And speaking of comeuppances, uh, uh, the, the, the story that comes after Roots and Planet um, in the table of contents <laughs> here, uh, mm -hmm. you can, is, oh, my God, <laughs> does this guy get a comeuppance? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and, and yeah. definitely informed by by historical practices uh, in in mm -hmm. the the Western Hemisphere. Yes, it's uh, Mesoamerican, pre-Columbian Mesoamerican, exactly. and and it's an example of a story told from the point of view of a not very admirable character. It's not a hero. Exactly. He's, an, he's a protagonist. But he's very definitely not a hero, and uh, he comes to an appropriate end. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like that. That is, that is like the nicest way I've ever seen uh, somebody say he gets what's coming to him. <laughs> yeah. an, a, a, an appropriate end. It's, it's a, such a polite yes. way of saying yes. Anyway, yes. Um, yeah, and 
and, and on the subject of, of not exactly comeuppance, but we are, we're talking about shifting dynamics, I would like to talk about, um, I think, what was the most interesting story for me in this collection, that was The Pirate. Mm-hmm. Because it, you also said that this was the last one that he wrote in this universe, right? Yes. Yes, it was. Interesting to me, reading all of these stories, you know, so many of them from the 1950s, and then we come to The Pirate um, from the, the late 60s, and the prose is, and not that the prose is um, not good in the other stories, but there's like this great leap forward in just basic prose from sentence to sentence um, that I was noticing in The Pirate. You know, another, another 10, 15 years of work and polish definitely shows to me. Yes, I saw the same thing when I was working on, on putting these together. And The Pirate is, is very well written and has, uh, a, again, a surprising payoff where someone gets an appropriate comeuppance. Indeed. And, yep. that, and that character appears also in Peregrine. Sounds really interesting about the story. And I think this is like what I wanted to, like, to, let's say, bring our conversation into toward the end is um, the idea which... Sandra, you wrote in a lot of the connecting uh, pieces, like thank mm-hmm. you for those, by the way, mm-hmm. um, that thank there you. is, that uh, the struggle between order and chaos is a fundamental, um, or I guess humanity versus entropy being the fundamental part of, this, uh, of his writing philosophy, I guess? Yes, and, and remember that, ent- that entropy has two forms, status and chaos, and he, he's worked with both ends of it. So in the so let's look at the pirate for a second in that view because on one hand we have um, we have we have Trevelyan Mike on one hand and on the other hand we have uh, essentially like the the pirates the entrepreneurs whatever you want to call them and he, and they talk, and their argument to him as he's turning the tables on them and I'm sorry for the spoilers I guess but the book was written sir was <laughs> written sixty years ago um, yeah that, <laughs> that they are their argument to him like. Yes, we did report that there was a, a civilization here in the past because we're all about movement. We're, this, uh, this is the future, and we need to keep moving. And he's like, somebody needs to remember these people for what they were. Mm-hmm. And I just found that whole argument fascinating, if, I, if any, any of you three want to talk about that. Um, yeah, the, you know, the, the pact between the living and the dead um, and the unborn, mm-hmm. the last paragraph is discussing, um, is, is lovely, and it's, uh, you know, the, the tension, is, as you were saying, Jonathan, between, you know, moving ahead and building and creating the civilization and exploiting everything that's available, and the other of remembering art and history and um, civilizations that went before you that have gone away for mysterious reasons. We don't know um, what happened to this. Actually, we do know what happened to this planet. There was a supernova. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, leaving behind great beauty that um, that the the pact of civilization uh, requires that we that we preserve. And as Chesterton said, tradition is the living memory of the dead. And uh, Paul was certainly into tradition. He he admires cultures that keep their traditions alive and do not uh, abandon them in the name of progress. He was, you know, he had a lot of traditional ideas. He was, uh, he was also interested in the space program, for heaven's sake, a great supporter of that. Uh, may I say something about the final story in there, which I think has tremendous emotional impact, The Last Man on Earth, uh, the but, chapter ends. Uh, but, um, actually, is it okay if we go quickly through Entity and Symmetry and then get the chapter ends? There are, there are a couple of smaller pieces, but they seem to touch upon some of the similar ideas. Well, entity and symmetry are puzzle stories. 
um, that, uh, well, uh, in fact, Entity was in Astounding, which is now analog. And it's how to solve a mystery that spacemen have encountered, and they do. And symmetry is a spaceman in a seeming uh, trap, and how can he get out of it? <laughs> that absolute symmetry does not permit life. I thought symmetry was, it reminded me somewhat of, uh, it's almost allegorical in its in its wonderfulness, um, and, it, and it's funny as heck, too. It is, and it, it all kind of turns down, comes down to, you know, sort of, um, Brownian motion is solving the problem, which is kind of mm-hmm. hilarious. Yes, yeah. yes, because uh, remember, Full had a degree in physics and used exactly. it. Um, but speaking of a physics degree, we came across uh, my dad's college physics textbook and his uh, a mm. binder of his um, physics exercises. Um, so he's working through the problems and, you know, computing orbits and uh, mass and volume and all this kind of stuff. It's it's a, a quite amazing artifact that is ultimately going to end up at the um, uh, Eaton Collection at uh, University of California, Riverside. Oh, and he cool. would draw and uh, compose backgrounds for every novel in enormous detail, make little sketches of the aliens or the critters and work out the not just the orbits but the kind of plants and uh, animals and so forth, all of them original with beautiful and appropriate poetic names. This is right. very much on display in uh, Technic Civilization series. But the the final one, the chapter ends, is, an, is also a tribute to man must, has a unique bond with the physical environment of Earth. And this is, this is the womb of the human race. And even if we get so advanced that we spread out into space, we are still bound as creatures who originated on Earth. And it has a very poetic language and a Absolutely. big emotional payoff. It felt very Scandinavian uh, also in ab- the... Uh, Absolutely. Yes. yes. And also, uh, Paul once remarked that he got, he got tired of people thinking that he only wrote Scandinavian characters. Because at one point in the 70s, I counted and there were as many Celtic characters or Celtic worlds as there were Scandinavian ones in uh, in his output up to that time. Uh, so he wasn't as limited and had also had a great appreciation of uh, Asian culture, particularly Japan. A lot of uh, it, it, looking, reading these two volumes, volume two and volume three of the Complete Psychotechnic League, there are um, several characters with um, Asian last names. Um, and then in the 70s and 80s, he started um, becoming interested in uh, uh, Pacific Islander culture and South American culture. Mm-hmm. So you see uh, characters from those backgrounds coming into his work as well. Yeah, he has a short series uh, that starts with a sort of Polynesian culture originating in New Zealand, and then right. uh, Maori and Kith. The time, the the Maori and Kith, and the the uh, Maori being the Maori, you know, descendants from the New England, the uh, New Zealand people. But there's also uh, one of the time uh, guardians of time stories which is set in peru and there's another one in a culture that has elements of uh, basic south america uh, south american flavor to it uh those are very very good stories the later time control stories are just excellent 
And I think yes, that's indeed. one of his most real. Amber is one of the most fully realized and realistic female characters that he ever wrote. Can one of y'all for a moment give a one of the things I don't think it'll hurt the story to say the chapter ends, which I think is is a beautiful capstone to the whole uh, three book series. It's just a, a wonderful tale. It's sad, melancholy, but at the same time beautiful. Um, can you give a little pricey of of what it's about? It, and it also goes well, back to what Greg said, Stapledonian in a way. Yes. Uh, well, it was. First published in 1953, and the situation is that Earth has to be evacuated. All the people of Earth are going to be resettled elsewhere for various uh, geogalactic reasons. And one old man refuses to go. And the story consists of explaining why they have to go, and no, I don't want to. And uh, so you have a depiction of man's bond with nature, and particularly our nature and our customs and our traditions. And it does seem to be taking uh, taking place in a, a Scandinavian-flavored culture. In fact, they have, the people have Scandinavian sort of names. Right, uh, and, and it's it, this lovely rural setting where they're bringing in the harvest and the um, uh, you know young girl goes out picking flowers in the fields, and it's this beautiful um, midsummer Scandinavian feel to the whole thing. Yes, yes. And in fact, the lead character, what is his first name? Uh, Joran, Joran. Yes, you know, that, that sounds vaguely Scandinavian. Uh, but it is, it is a lovely story, and it made the perfect cap bookend to the series. Then, if that's the case, what can we talk about then the very ending of it? Because it seems to be almost a a moment of panic. Yes, yes. Well, he has fought so hard to be allowed to stay behind and stay where his his dead are buried, and he's in the he's in the graveyard, and he sees the graves of his parents and some of his children. I had to stay. This is my land. I am of it, and I couldn't go. Someone had to stay behind and keep the land. And then, okay, you're keeping the land, and you're keeping the land, and the loneliness that he's let himself in for really hits. Um, uh, Pascal's The Terror of the Infinite Spaces, The Silence of the Infinite Spaces Terrifies Me, is also a theme that you find in in, uh, in Paul that... The the galaxy is wonderful, and yet at the same time, we are small, and it is great, and it's ultimately terrifying, even though we love it. The, the last person on Earth, you know, and so he's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the immensity of being the last person, human person on the planet that gave rise to human people, um, it just overwhelms him, and, and he's he's horrified and terrified, and, and the story ends. One word for that is vastation, which was, I think, uh, Henry James or, or uh, Henry James's father's word for the feeling of cosmic consciousness that suddenly just leaves you as a human behind. And it's also ultimately one of the great science fiction tragic themes. Is uh, mm-hmm. there, there was a uh, you know the, at the end of 2001, you have this moment that kind of echoes a uh, a postcard that was sent. I have a cosmic mind. What do I do next? Mm-hmm. It was kind of a Spanish theme back in the 40s. To his fullest extent in Genesis, his uh, yeah. his 
final uh, wonderful novel that also won an academic prize, the John W. Mm -hmm. Campbell Award. Well, we are about to run out of time, so just before we do, um, is there anything, like, any parting words, anything that people must know about Paul Anderson that hasn't been said yet today? I think it's probably all been said, but it's can't, you can, one can certainly restate it. Um, he was a wonderful writer, um, had an incredibly wide-ranging oeuvre, um, everything from high fantasy to, to humor to the hardest of science fiction to um, whatever. Um, so absolutely dive in, and the Complete Psychotechnic League series is a, is a great place to start. And, it, I mean, it really, because of it's, it has such a wide breadth of time of settings of the stories as well as um, when it was the stories were written. Um, it really is a slice through ideas of science fiction um, and and future history that um, it's, it's a great read. To hear uh, something final from uh, Greg and Astrid, just a, a little bit of a momentary uh, a look at, at Paul Anderson as a, as a guy, um, since you both know him so well, of course. Um, he was a charming Sharon. fellow to spend time with and um, uh, loved telling jokes and, uh, and loved listening to, to people in their areas of expertise. Um, I remember he was saying once that he was, he was pleased to be as famous as he was. It was like just about the right level of fame so that he wouldn't, wasn't bothered when he went out on the street doing about his daily business. But um, he could use that, that fame to get entree to the things he wanted to get entree to, which could include um, being at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory during um, uh, planetary flybys and being invited to uh, be guests of honor at, uh, he and my mother both um, invited to guests of honor at science fiction conventions around the world, that they were able to, to travel and meet fans and pros in Europe and South America and Asia. Um, and that was, that was a, a true delight to them. Um, and he loved to travel. Uh, he was very widely traveled, and then he would uh, use that material in the books so that there right. was authenticity. The family joke of that was, uh, we've got to write about this so we can take it off our taxes. So they, yes, would, uh, yes. they would try to convert a trip into a story just so they could prove to the IRS, always a bane for Paul's existence, uh, that, that they had you know, done the research in this trip and, and written a story about it and made some money off of it. Yes, the, the trip to Brittany winds up in Orion Shall Rise. Yeah. And also the King of East. Paul and Karen, Paul was always constantly uh, uh, kind, helpful, and, and supportive. And I never knew him to exert an egotistical bone in his body. But to me, he was a giant because he wrote so much wonderful material that influenced me. Uh, I'm not sure I can say that I mind it, but, uh, but I certainly was mindful of it. And uh, I think that, that Paul and Karen together were a dyad that always was able to kind of find the research necessary. And they helped me on some of my earlier books. Uh, Paul and Karen helped figure out orbits in Eon, and Karen helped work out some of the language that takes place in the last chapter. Yes. And, and yes, getting insight into all of that was just really kind of wonderful over the years that Paul was with us, mm -hmm. uh, and, and Karen too. And and now we're going through the papers and finding more and more instances of their connection to science fiction, their love of science fiction, and the influence they had on it. And the other thing, they had interests parallel to science fiction, like uh, Sherlock Holmes fandom. Uh, exactly. They were, they were very, very fond of. Uh, Karen had founded a Sherlock Holmes group when she was a college student, and SCA, and they were among the most popular pros ever in old fandom. 
They and were. Always and, uh, and, uh, ceaseless, ceaselessly courteous to the rudest little fan. Uh, <laughs> very. Uh, no, I, I could give you examples of that, but uh, it, just easily approachable and courteous, uh, perfect gentleman. And for him, him, having a hearing aid that he could turn down helped too. Oh, well, there were times true. when you when you would hear a little flea go off, and he would adjust his hearing aid. And uh, but but you also know that there were times when he wasn't listening to everything that was being said. But only if he felt it was interesting <laughs> did he turn the, turn the hearing aid up. He had, he had his protective mechanisms too, but he had this constant smile mm-hmm. that, that that made mm-hmm. you feel like okay, you you were being appreciated, you were there, and you know, uh, I I think he was he was able to defend himself in that way. Thank you so much for for coming, and of course, Sandra, thank you for everything. Um, I really appreciate appreciate you guys taking the time today, and for everyone else, the complete Psychotechnic League Volume Three is out from Bain. Also, we have the first two volumes, so if you get all three, you get the entirety of the saga from start to finish. Yes, and look in on the Technic Civilization, which Bain also publishes in many volumes. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan and Tony, for putting this together. It's been a great discussion. Now we begin the audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent them the great hero Ramruan to save them. He united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. Yet as centuries passed, gods and demons became myth and legend, and the people no longer believed. The Age of Law began. Ashok Vadal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a fabled member of the elite, militant order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways. Everything is black or white, good or evil, until he discovers his entire life is a fraud. Ashok isn't who he thinks he is, and when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences will lead to rebellion, war, and destruction. Here is the first installment of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. Audible Studios presents Son of the Black Sword, Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, Book One. Written by Larry Correa, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Chapter One The Familiar Dream was always the same. He was on his knees, wiping a stone floor clean. The rag soaked up the red puddle, a mixture of soapy water and blood. When he wrung the tattered cloth out over his wash bucket, it ran in pink rivulets across his hands, a child's hands. A noise intruded on the dream, waking him. Footsteps. He moved one hand to his sword, and in the hazy moment between sleep and reality, it still seemed to be a child's hand, dripping with watered-down blood. But the dream faded, and reality returned. Now it was a man's hand, calloused by training and scarred by battle. That hand belonged to Protector of the Law, 20 years senior Ashok Vidal, and he did not clean blood. He spilled it. 
Listening carefully, Ashok decided that the noise had come from just outside his tent. A warrior had approached, then stopped there, probably to gather up his courage before waking their honored guest. Ashok relaxed and released Angruvadal's grip. Reaching for it first was an old habit. If the sword needed to be drawn, it would have told him. The blood-scrubbing dream had come to him many times before, but as usual, it held no wisdom, no revelations. It meant nothing. After all, it was only a dream. It was a fabrication of the mind, not a memory. It was not real. The stifling heat was real. The moist, clinging air was real. He'd been sleeping beneath hanging silks because the stinging flies that infested this region were all too real. The sweaty discomfort reminded him that he was in the wretched northern jungles of House Gujara, and that he'd been ordered there to kill a demon. The waking noises of the temporary camp and the unusual silence of the jungle suggested that the demon had shown itself. The messenger hadn't announced himself yet. Ashok was used to low-status members of the warrior caste behaving this way around him, either out of respect for his office or fear of his reputation. He'd been listening to their whispered rumors for two decades now, half of which weren't true and the other half exaggerated, but it was no wonder messengers were always so nervous around him. It was always best to cut through the awkward pause. Is it time? Ashok asked through the canvas. The demon has been sighted, Protector. Where? He rolled out from beneath the silks and found his clothing in the dark. It's raiding a village on the coast right now. The warrior was trying to keep the fear out of his voice, and mostly succeeding. The messenger said it's already slaughtered dozens. So it's close then. Yes, Protector. The demon is very close. Good. It was too damned hot to have to chase it. Ashok sprinted along the darkened path toward the sounds of screaming. His appointed escorts, a palton of fifty warriors, were behind him, struggling and failing to keep up. The soldiers were on foot because horses didn't survive for long in the humid, muddy, vine-choked, insect-infested northern peninsula of House Gujara, so their warrior caste had no cavalry tradition here. However, when it came to fighting a demon, being on foot was not a disadvantage. Horses were terrified by demons, and no matter how well-trained, could not be relied upon. Besides, for short distances such as this, Ashok could outrun a horse. He began to encounter fleeing villagers along the path. There were a few men, women, and children of the worker caste, but most of the refugees were casteless non-people. It made sense, because only the lowest of the low would be condemned to live close to the seashore. Many of those he passed were wounded, mostly from crashing through the thorny brush but a few were showing the blackened, bloody patches that came from simply brushing against a demon's hide. Rub a hand against a demon one direction, it was smooth, almost soft. But run it the opposite and leave your palm behind. There had been no time for the villagers to gather their possessions. 
Since the demon had struck in the middle of the night, most of the villagers weren't even clothed. But a few of the castlers were carrying squealing pigs or squawking chickens. Non-people were pragmatic that way. As he drew closer to the village, the fleeing crowd became thicker, and he had to dodge between them. They were terrified, desperate to escape. But he moved through the crushing mob effortlessly, like a raindrop falling from the sky and rolling between the leaves of a tree, seeking its inevitable path. Behind him, there was a great deal of shouting as the warrior caste crashed into and roughly shoved their inferiors out of their way, off the path, and into the stabbing thorn vines. The village was close now. The breaking of wood and the crack and pop of fire could be heard over the panicked cries. The demon itself would make no sound. They never did. Asher could smell smoke and blood and spilled bowels but the demon itself would have no scent. It would be a swift, black shadow, with claws harder than steel, a mouth full of razor teeth, and the strength of an elephant. The orange light from several burning huts cast wild shadows through the trees. The thick jungle parted. There wasn't much open space between the jungle and the high tide, so the ramshackle buildings had been packed tightly, practically on top of each other, and built on stilts to keep them dry above the rocky beach. Bridges constructed of wood and hemp connected the structures, and they were swaying violently as people ran across, trying to escape the spreading fires and the demon's hunger. Beyond the village was the vast, dark ocean. Nothing came from the sea except for regret, fish, and demons. There was no sign of the demon yet, but Ashok knew it was in there somewhere. His sword could sense it as well, and Angruvadal was demanding to be drawn in order to dispense death. Not yet. Demons seemed to sense black steel, and he didn't want to frighten the creature away. If it returned to the sea, there would be no way to follow, and he'd have to wait for another chance to catch it. As he caught his breath, he noticed several warriors stationed at the end of the jungle path, shouting at the villagers to flee for their lives, as if the encouragement was needed. The soldiers were armed with spears, and wearing the simple cloth and hide armor preferred by House Gujara, where rust was a greater enemy than actual enemies. Despite being equipped for battle and raised their entire lives to do nothing but fight, they were in no hurry to enter that burning maze to take on a demon. Go back the way you came. There's a sea demon here. A very young soldier warned when he saw Ashok emerge from the jungle. Run away while you can. The firelight was flickering and unreliable, so the junior Nayak had probably not realized who he was ordering around. Ashok didn't take his warning as an insult against his courage. He entered the circle of torchlight, and when they saw his armor, they shut their mouths. Which one of you is in command? The soldier realized what manner of man he's been speaking to. Apologies, Protector. Our Havildar is Virata. It was part explanation, part summons. And then he realized that, demon incursion or not, he'd better bow to someone of such high station so he dipped his head so fast that his padded helmet fell off into the sand.
I'll fetch him. Havildar, a protector is here. A protector? Impossible. Another warrior, gone a bit fat, came jogging up. He was too old to hold the low rank of Havildar, a leader of ten, but of course, a great house would only send the dim and disgraced from among its warrior caste to protect a cursed holding such as this. Our house has abandoned us. We're all going to die here. There's no... The ornate armor of the protector order should have been a giveaway, but Ashok showed him the token of his office, so there could be no question about who was now in charge. The officer's eyes widened when he saw the gold flash in the firelight. Take me to the sea demon, Ashok said. I can't. The officer wailed. Ashok couldn't believe his ears. The law was clear about both of their duties in this situation. Are you disobeying my order? His tone was cold. Calm yourself and speak carefully before you answer. No, protector. It was, I don't know. I saw it reach through old Ravna's stomach, take hold of his spine and pull his head right through his shoulders. Such a thing can't be real. I ordered a retreat because we had to run. I had no choice. That babbling didn't answer Ashok's question. The Havildar was stupid with fear. Demons could shatter even a great warrior's courage. And he was fairly certain this man had never been counted among House Kujara's great to begin with. Calm yourself and tell me, where is the demon? The Havildar cowered. Too strong. Too much blood. I can't. Won't go back. In a time of crisis, some men might shirk their duties, but to a protector, obedience was everything, and the law required him to punish this demon for trespassing. He couldn't do it if they were lollygagging around while it swam back to sea, so Ashok backhanded the warrior in the mouth, hard enough to loosen a few teeth from his jaw. The officer fell in the sand, whimpering. Where? We saw it in the storehouse, interjected the young soldier before Ashok could put his boot to the Havildar. He was pointing into one of the larger fires, past that big building there. Last I saw, the demon was heading toward the castless quarter, that direction. The castless were not people. They were property. But they looked enough like real men that the sea demon probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Ashok could only assume that non-people tasted the same as real people to a demon. It was huge. I had to duck to get through the big storehouse door. The junior soldier lifted one hand as high as possible, stretching it over his head and even stood on his toes. The Nayak was tall, nearly as tall as Ashok, in fact. Even allowing for some exaggeration from the terror of seeing such a thing, that meant this demon was a big one. The larger demons that bothered to come up on shore were particularly bloodthirsty, and their raiding period could often last an entire season. If it wasn't stopped tonight, then its rampage would continue, night after night, until it was killed or sated. They would take a few minutes for this 50-man escort to catch up, and when they did, they would be too out of breath to be immediately useful. The demon would surely sense the arrival of that many soldiers and might decide to leave. It couldn't be allowed to escape.
Reinforcements are coming. Tell the Rizaldar in charge that I've gone after it. Alone? Ashok drew the ancestor blade of Great House Vidal from the sheath on his belt. And Gruvadal was eager. The sword retained the collected martial instincts of every man who had ever carried it into battle, all in a length of metal so black that it absorbed the light around it, and so sharp that it could even pierce the hide of a demon. The Nayak realized what it was and took a fearful step back. I am never alone. That was the first entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Duckowitz. And a cosmic goodbye to Astrid and Greg Bear and Sandra Measel. And thanks and applause for our discussion on The Complete Psychotechnic League, Volume 3, by Paul Anderson. Please join us here next time at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And as always, keep reaching for the stars.